You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic, at the age of 36. During this period, I I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Nick Conn to the podcast. Nick has a remarkably unique story. In his early 20s, he was a police officer who became addicted to cocaine and ended up homeless in Berlin and on the run from the Albanian mafia. Unbelievably, Nick managed to turn his life around and he has now been clean for 14 years. He is now the founder and CEO of a drug and alcohol rehab centre, Help for Addiction, and I'm thrilled he's here today to talk to us. Hello, Nick. Thank you for coming to chat with us today. Um, could you just start by telling us your story and how you got into drugs in the first place? So for me, I'd always suffered with low self-esteem and insecurity. And when I got introduced to cocaine, ironically, when I passed my medical exam for entrance into the police. So it was like a celebration thing. Um, and I'd never tried it before. I'd smoked a bit of weed before, but it was never a thing. Um, And yeah, I took cocaine and all of a sudden those insecurities, everything that I'd experienced, it just went. And it was replaced with this kind of overwhelming euphoria, this overwhelming confidence, this feeling that I, I pretty much searched for my whole life. And the drug did for me what I couldn't do for myself. So you talk quite positively about about the drugs. Absolutely. I've you know, I've done so many talks to schools on drugs because people go into schools, oh don't do don't do drugs, they're bad for you. Kids don't listen to that. Mm-hmm. You know, my experience was effectively the dr- the drug did for me what I couldn't do for myself. The consequences that followed were obviously very very dramatic and I wouldn't recommend anyone going down that road um however drugs and alcohol are not someone's problem they're someone's solution Mm -hmm. and it certainly did for me it was that initially yeah so how was like your childhood how was your school days great childhood great school days can't blame anything on trauma and there's obviously many different entry points into addiction but that certainly wasn't wasn't mine um it was pretty much, yeah, just insecurities mm. and, and low self-esteem. And I've seen you write about your ADHD before as well. Yeah, so I actually didn't know that I had ADHD until I had my first child. Right, okay. Um, which was quite unusual how it came around because when I was training for the police, mm-hmm. you have to train for 18 weeks and you've got to get over 80% every week or you're out. So 
I'm struggling to take in this information. I'm trying to learn it. I'm staying up all night. I'm falling asleep. It's not being retained. And then I thought, you know what? I'll get some cocaine. Mm. And so my using started in isolation pretty much from the beginning. It wasn't really the partying and the this, that, yeah. and the other. And so I started using cocaine whilst I was training, and all of that information was going in. I was retaining it all. So ultimately, what I didn't know is I had undiagnosed ADHD in that um, a stimulant can help with that, mm -hmm. which is why they prescribe amphetamine-based drugs for, for, for ADHD. Um, so that was all unknown. But when I had my child, it was trying to remember all the chores, like everything that you had to do for a baby. And for me, it just wasn't second nature. Um, my wife, to her, it was she was just meant for it. She's amazing. But I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a consultant psychiatrist, and I said, "I just I'm really struggling because I didn't realise I actually suffered with postnatal depression. Postnatal depression. Oh wow! Which I didn't know men could. Yeah. And I didn't want to say how I was feeling because I didn't want to patronise women or anything like that. Um. So I didn't realize that men could suffer with postnatal depression and I really struggled. Um, I think maybe I'm naturally selfish <laughs> and you have to become selfless, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it, I just struggled, it was the lack of sleep and in recovery, I follow a halt kind of method which is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Mm -hmm. So any four of those can be a potential trigger for me. Right. So sleeping's always been important, you know, be, be, not being lonely, angry. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm never really hungry. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so, so that it, it started to affect me in many ways and using wasn't an option yeah. and it was coming out in other ways. So so how do you manage your ADHD now? So that he ironically said you should have an assessment for, for ADHD and I did and passed or failed with flying colors whatever yeah. the the the, uh, the answer would be but um we tried many different drugs mm. now for me my level of my tolerance to stimulants is very high yeah um so when i took the drug my i went straight to like a come down mm. feeling and for me my head's gone bang get some more take some more typical addict right yeah so as soon as that started happening i thought yeah th this, uh, this has to stop mm. so now we just find ways of coping yeah because i'm surprised actually that you were kind of able as an addict to take the drugs for your adhd yeah and you've got to be careful because you know some some people can abuse it mm. but it's got to be got to be kept a close eye on yeah so looking back at your school days um do you kind of see adhd behaviors that would have affected you back then? Yeah, so I, I have what you call <clears throat> ADD. Mm -hmm. I haven't got the H, yeah. the hyperactivity. Yeah. Kind of wish I did at times. <laughs> um, but no, I haven't got the H. So it, I can recall, and it's amazing how things can affect you as you, you grow up, because I was in a class and the teacher was talking about something or rather, I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. And... Then he stopped and said, is there any questions? And I asked a question to exactly what he just said. Yeah. And everyone laughed. And that, in turn, kind of affected me asking questions, yeah. if that makes sense. You know, some people just do it naturally. 
I have to really try hard to ask questions. Mm. So I really have to try to be mindful of that. Interesting. And so do you think any of kind of that schooling and your childhood, any of that made you want to be in the police force? Like what appealed to you about the police force? So my, my older brother was in it. Okay. Um, and like anything, you hear the fun sort of stuff and yeah. the 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 chases and the you know the police chases and the car chases and foot chases and any mm. type of chase <laughs> you know yeah. the fights the this that and the other and you think you could either be sat behind a desk mm-hmm. which didn't really appeal to me then um, alternatively something quite adrenaline fueled mm. so I kind of followed in that footsteps I think. Yeah, but I also think that I was pretending to be someone that I wasn't because my brother was meant for that, although he's not in it anymore. For me, they just weren't my people. No, it just was it never right then. No. no. So how long were you in the police before you left? I was in it for about four or five years, um, and then I had to leave due to an assault. So it's a whole drama. I won't dive in too much into that. Drug related. Uh, not per se. Um, it was because um, I was probably, I was up all night night before, so I was probably short-tempered. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was towards someone that was committing an offence on a child, which right. was seen. So um, so you were asked to leave the police force? So I attacked this gentleman um, in police custody. Right. So... I was advised to resign. Okay. Otherwise, I could have been fa- faced charges. Right. Okay. So you were taking drugs in those four or five years in the police. Did anyone ever know about that? No. I mean, when you're training, you you have people coming from all over. So let's say people from Newcastle. It's quite hard to get into the county police forces. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they try and get into the Met, which is a bit easier, right. do two years and then they transfer, which is a way to do it. Yeah. So when you're training at Hendon, you get a lot of people coming from all over the mm. country. Um, so, and obviously it, it, back then they trained you in Hendon, but, and I only, I grew up in Bushy, so Watford was kind of like my stomping ground. Yeah. So we'd go out on a night out and things would happen yeah. and, and what have you. So... During that stage, I think it was more fun and other people, officers, trying to obviously be very diplomatic in what I say, yeah, would sometimes get involved. Whether that's continued or not for them, I don't know. Yeah. So were you, when you were working, kind of nine to five or night shifts, you were under the, under, on drugs? So it wasn't just, go- yeah, it wasn't just going out at night. No. And a lot Anyone that's done cocaine or, or struggled with a cocaine addiction will be aware of the paranoia that comes with it. Mm-hmm. When you're a police officer in police uniform walking past a mirror, mm-hmm. that takes your paranoia to a whole new level, yeah. especially being in a police station. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. So you would be taking drugs in the police station? Yeah. Wow. And no one ever caught you? I almost got caught. You did almost caught? I almost caught. got caught. So... There was a call that came... Th- I was doing a line of cocaine in in the police toilet. Mm-hmm. And there was a call that came through on the radio. I think from the top of my head, it was something like a traffic warden being attacked or something. 
So we've ran out, got in the car, blue lights, got there and realised that I'd left my credit card and a rolled up sort of five pound note and my cocaine mm. on the toilet seat. Yeah. So I had to make up an excuse to my colleague that I'd not replenished my CS spray, something along those lines. Um, so he's like, no, it's fine, it's fine. I was like, no, we're turning the car around. So I had to turn the car around, ran in, got it. And as I walked out of that cubicle, um, I think it was either my sergeant or the inspector that walked straight into that cubicle. Wow. So it was a matter of seconds. Yeah. And at that point, did you think enough's enough? Or no. you just thought, oh, no. whatever. No. It was like, <laughs> wow, that was close. Okay, wow. Okay, so then you left the police force. And wh what happened then? So, a variety of kind of jobs, estate agency jobs, things like that. And the thing is, when you're going through early early stage addictions, I was sort of nineteen, twenty at that age, and I was on sort of twenty six, twenty seven thousand pounds, and I was living with my family, so mm -hmm. there was no financial consequences. You know, things were good, but over time the loans start coming out, the credit cards start being taken out mm -hmm. and the debt starts coming and it, it just progresses. And I think, so I did a variety of different jobs and, and I, I'd never, I, I always looked at myself like I'm doing wrong stuff, but I'm a good person. I've always known I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, it's like a real conflict that's going on internally. It's like, why am I doing this? But I am a good person. Yeah. Um, were you doing bad stuff to people, to friends, families? Not, it was to people that I really didn't care about more. Um, but it was, you know, eventually, in, when I was in a state agency, I ended up stealing from houses. Mm. Um, and I thought I'd do it cleverly by... The ones that we had the keys registered with us, you know, I'd go there, but put, I'm going to another property, and so so it wasn't tracked. Wow, would um, steal money or I'd steal items. cameras or whatever I could, and and for me, I thought that was my lowest because thieving was something that I've always hated. Mm. I hate thieves, um, and this just was really starting to go against who I was. Yeah, um, but then. As I said right at the beginning, the drugs aren't the problem, they're the solution. When we feel these emotions and these feelings, we push it back down mm. by taking another substance. Um, so that's just that's part of the journey. And I think over time it kind of built up and the debt built up. And I ended up having to, wanting to get away from everything. Mm. And I ended up taking a job with a company, with TUI. Yeah, um, the travel company. The travel company to teach do a snowboarding rep in Austria. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a great opportunity. Get away from everything. Yeah. There won't be any cocaine there. <laughs> Lol. Yeah, at a ski resort. Um, <laughs> in the middle of the mountains. Yeah. Um, yeah. And once again, so I took that job and I went. And I remember the dealers were closing in on me. And we got a and bus there was like a coach that they put on from Camden that drives you to to Austria mm -hmm. and I remember as this coach was pulling off it was like relief 
phone off. Yeah. You know, relief. And yeah, but so I kind of went out there, did a snowboard season and started drinking a bit more, found the only dealer that was in the, this resort probably within about seven minutes. Yeah. Um, and I would say it was more controllable, um, but it definitely, it, it wasn't as bad as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but the drinking started creeping up. Right. Now, drinks have never really been a thing for me, but it was more of the partying aspect that, you know, and that's what kind of came with it. So, yeah, so that's kind of where, where it went. Yeah. And then when that season came to an end, I came back, did this, that and the other, and then ended up getting a job with a company called MRI where they placed me in Berlin. Right. And that's where it went to a whole new level. So before you went to Berlin, things were kind of a social state, you'd say. You weren't in debt anymore. The debt was safe. still there. It was just being ignored or, okay. or run from. Okay, so then you went to Berlin. And what, what happened there? Had a lovely holiday, came home. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got... Um, we went out for like the new team. We went to a bar called AM to PM in an area called Hackershamart, which was like the Camden equivalent of Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I blagged us into the VIP area. And in the VIP area, there was this guy I wrote about in my book. I can't remember what name I gave him, but his name was Arta. And he was with girls and obviously I started chatting to him and he managed to get me some cocaine and started talking to him and befriending him. Well, it turns out that Arta ran brothels in Berlin. Right. Now, in Berlin, brothels are completely legal. Mm-hmm. However, what they were doing is because it was actually quite clever. So over here, you know, like if the finance industry, if they take clients out, they might take them to a strip club or something on the company card. Well, over there, they take him to brothels. And they were char- They were paying sort of 100 euros for a gram of cocaine, which is sort of double the price. But through the brothel, so via, via credit card. So they were selling large amounts amongst all their brothels via credit cards. It was all legal transactions, so to speak. But obviously what they were giving them was illegal. Um, so they, they had quite a few of those selling, selling a lot of that. And I just started hanging around there more. And then it was like, oh, Nick, can you do us a favor? This brothel's quiet. That one's busy. Can you take some of the girls from here and take them over there? So I drive them over there and then I'd be given a bit of cocaine and this, that, and the other. Um, and then that kind of escalated and to the point that I would do other favors um and be given cocaine constantly what i didn't know is that all of this cocaine that i was being given was on debt i thought and anyone would assume it was for the serve like what i'm helping them with um so eventually they called in that debt which was 15 20 or thousand pounds um and or euros i can't remember um and i was like you know how do you want me to get that 
and they're like you've got you've got like four days or something that they gave me and now unfortunately these people don't accept payment plans or IOUs or so I was forced to um and at the same time I lost my job I was going to ask if you were still doing your nine-to-five job so you, you lost same. it because you weren't able to function so it's frustrating really because it turns out that the company I was working for was actually a huge scam yeah, okay. right it just you just can't make this up so mri i mean it's in in the papers for anyone that wants to google them so MR, mri stands for mac antony realty international um and it's owned by a guy called dara McAntony, an irish guy and they were at all the property like uh property abroad sort of exhibitions like at the excel and things like that so you go there if you can prove that you have the funds to purchase a property um they fly you out to Berlin, they put you up in a hotel and arrange for someone like me to pick them up, tour them about Berlin, do the spiel that they teach us and sell them these properties. But the notary is a notary, notaire or notaries was all involved in this as well. So it turns out what they're actually buying wasn't property. Oh, wow. um, and that hit the papers. They even sponsored, I think, Portsmouth Football Club. So branding wise you know they looked like a yeah a very reputable so then they pay people like me they put you up in accommodation they give you a car they pay you a basic salary you know so and this, this is a global operation yeah so you wouldn't question it but it turns out that i only found out maybe 10 years ago that that was in the paper oh wow yeah so Gosh, but they so. had the audacity to fire me for drugs <laughs> <laughs> um so so they fired you first for drugs. They fired me first. Um, <laughs> so you're in a massive debt. Massive debt. I was telling my family how well I was doing because I wanted them to be proud of me. Mm -hmm. Back then there wasn't FaceTime, S Skype, I think was just starting. Mm -hmm. So th there wasn't any of that kind of video thing. So they couldn't see that I looked like shit. Yeah. Um, Did you open up to friends at all? Or no, no one knew so what you were going through? People knew that I'd struggled and then I stopped and... and and I think my family thought, you know, things were going very good for me. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the impression I was giving. Yeah. And, yeah, so, where was I at? Is my you, ADHD you're in debt. In yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're basically, you lost your job and you, you owe these guys 20 Yeah, so they, so they called that in. So I ended up, when you lose your job, you lose your apartment. Right. So, so I'm in an area... Um, I had no, I literally had no idea what to do. Um, I remember going to the Koo Dam, which is where, um, it's like the Knightsbridge of Berlin. It's the best way I can explain it. Um, in an area called Charlottenburg, it's a beautiful area. And I remember just sitting down, it was sort of seven or eight o'clock in the evening and sitting in the doorway of Gucci. And I didn't leave there for, I think, a good part of a week. Um, and that was basically it. So I'm now homeless. Mm. Um, and then I got to the point that uh, these three German guys tried to wheel me, um, and I ended up kicking, punching him in, in the testicles and yeah. then it, they kicked the daylights out of me. And I remember I thought, that's it, I'm dumb. And I went to a phone phone box and I called my family and they they said go to a hotel and get them to call me when you're there mm -hmm. so I went to the hotel Adlon 
which is where Michael Jackson hanged his child over the balcony. If you're going to do it, do it properly, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and they called my. I explained the situation. They called my family. My family paid for the room. I had the longest shower of my life. Okay. Um, and then they flew me home. Did you the, tell your parents everything? At I told that them point. everything. I told them I've got a drug problem. Uh, I've got Albanians after me, and I'm homeless. Oh and I've got to say, they were amazing. So yeah. they said, just go to a hotel, get them to call me when you're there. And yeah, and then they f I flew back, mm -hmm. um, and see the problem is I can't remember timelines, yeah. as proven earlier when you asked yeah. me how when was the last time I was here, and I yeah, said yeah, six yeah. months, and apparently it was a year ago. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I went into rehab, mm -hmm. um, but where one of the problems I was having is we didn't know what rehab to go to because if I asked you to name a rehab, the only one you'll probably know is the Priory. Yeah. Right. And unless you've got 25, 30,000 pounds, mm -hmm. you're not going in there. Yeah. So we were struggling where to go. And it was only for a friend of my dad's that knew one in Bognor Regis. Right. So, um, I ended up going into rehab for three months and, so at this point, you wanted to go to rehab. You were at your I lowest... Was, I was ready. You were, I, you were ready. completely had enough of it all. Do you think the, an addict has to be ready to go to rehab? Or do you think they can be forced? I think an addict has to be willing. Willing, yeah. And I think it's... Um, I can't tell you how many lives that we've saved because mm. we've made parents give ultimatums to people. Right. Um, because I think... Yes, if they get to the stage of shouting off the rooftops, I want the help, great. Mm. But unfortunately, people don't always make it to that stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah. So we're going to come to rehab in a second, but looking back at that time when you were at your lowest, when you look back at that now, how does that make you feel? When I look at back at which bit? At your lowest moments, you know, lying and being homeless, <laughs> people weirding it, you. It, it's weird because... It just, I try to picture it, but that part of it is just, it's pretty much black in my mind, if that makes sense. Mm. I remember weird things about getting noodles from a really good noodle place out there for one, do, for one euro. <laughs> but yet the other side of it, it just seems to to just kind of not, not be pictured. Um, so you've blanked it out, do you think? Or is it yeah, that you were under the influence of drugs back then, so that's why you prob don't remember? Probably it. a mixture of both. Um, it, it was, you know, when it got dark, that night in, in the doorway of Gucci, of course, darling. Um, not Primark, Gucci. <laughs> um, so that, that night um, was probably the scared, scaredest I think I've ever been. Mm. Um, when it starts getting dark, and it's the lonelier, loneliness... I've never ever experienced mm. anything like it. Bear in mind, I've got the most supportive, loving family. Yeah. Um, so for me, that yeah, that was hell. Um, but it wasn't the end. Yeah. Even rehab wasn't the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, it goes. Stay, stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> and are you are you remorseful about any of the bad stuff you did? Absolutely. You know, I, there's many people that say, oh, I'm an addict, it's not my fault. Well, no, your behaviours and your actions absolutely are. Mm -hmm. um, so I've spent my career 
I feel trying to make amends mm-hmm. um, and try to flick back from rather than taking and hurting people to helping yeah. people. Um, and I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah. And that's part of the programme, isn't it? Yeah, so Making amends. It, it is. And not everyone goes down that sort of fellowship route. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say it doesn't matter what route you go down as long as it works. Yeah. Um, because some people walk in with cocaine anonymous, alcoholics anonymous, narcotics anonymous, you walk in and you hear the word God. And for a lot of people, they walk straight back out because they don't want the religious aspect. And what they don't realise is it's actually nothing to do with religion, it's to do with a higher power. Now, for me, I still struggled with that, but I used the word God. For me, it stood for good orderly direction. Some people change it to group of druggies or a group of drunks because that power of the group is more powerful than me being by myself. So for me, it was good orderly direction. So trying to help others be honest, be selfless rather than selfish, Mm -hmm. try and help people where I can, just trying to pack as much as I can in the day. So using the opposite behaviours to what I did in addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And so you said you went to rehab for three months. And what kind of treatment was it? Was it part of a kind of a fellowship program? Yeah, so they they do what they call the Minnesota model, which is the rehab version of 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, but you obviously have a combination of other modalities like you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, mm-hmm. motivational interviewing, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, but the psychoeducational workshops are probably one of the most important part because you... you've got to deal with the underlining issues and then you've got to learn those coping skills, those relapse prevention techniques, how to deal with triggers, everything to kind of maintain it. So anyone can stay clean in a rehab, but everything the rehab's trying to do is to help you stay clean when you're out. However, they gave me a really bad bit of advice and the people that I was in rehab with were, most of them were coming from prison to get a reduced sentence um so they they ultimately i was i had my family and i was living with my family and they said you need to be more independent you need to learn to be more independent rather than relying on your family you need to get your own property i said well how do you expect me to do that i've got nothing you need to claim benefits i didn't know how to claim benefits but the people in rehab showed me how to do so and get a flat which I got in Barnet in an area I didn't know anyone mm. um, completely by myself and it was the it was a bad bit of advice because then I felt isolated and lonely again mm. and then I ended up relapsing oh, did you okay um, this is about two after. months after rehab oh, wow. so I always you know connection mm. is the opposite to addiction it goes back to that experiment that was done I don't know if you ever heard about it it's called Rat Park. Okay. So what they did is they put a rat in a cage by itself. Then they put two bottles of water on the side of the cage. One which was infused with cocaine mm-hmm. and one which wasn't. It was just water. So the rat tried both bottles of water but only went back to the one with cocaine in it. Mm-hmm. So then they repeated the experiment and they called it Rat Park where they put this rat in a cage with all of his friends spinny wheels tubes the whole lot Mm -hmm. 
And all of the rats tried both bottles of water, but they only went back to the one without cocaine. Wow. So what they came to realise is the opposite to addiction is connection. And I was off, I was given contradicting advice leaving rehab to that. Yeah. So after your relapse, what happened then? So my brother, he built up a security company whilst he was in the police and it grew too big, which is why he ended up leaving the police. And he said to me, do you want to do some work on a door in South London, security work, for cash? I thought, great, I could do with some money. So I thought, be great, I'll meet some nice ladies. He missed a big bit of information of what type of club it was. So it was a gay club, no problem with that. It was the fact of what type it was. So it was a fetish club and there was a dark room and there was all sorts of things going on and you got to patrol this room and it was just quite... Um, and then I won't even go into what, what I saw. Yeah. Um, but it's not what you see in a normal club, let's say. Yeah. Um, and in the gay scene, there are certain drugs that are quite popular like um, crystal meth, GHB, GBL, ketamine, things like that. Now, with GHB, it's a really dangerous drug, like really dangerous. The chances of a seizure are really high. And this was New Year's Eve on 2008, and a gentleman was having a fit. And whilst I called an ambulance for him, I took his wallet, um, went to... The went to the toilet and went to use his, his drugs and, and I was using it and I looked at myself in the mirror mm. and thought what the hell have you become this is a vulnerable person mm. that's you know okay I've called the ambulance thankfully I did that you know but um, and I looked in the mirror and I thought what have you become yeah. and it's out of everything that I'd done that was the trigger point for me so 11.57 p.m. New Year's Eve 2008 was the last time I'd ever taken any mind-altering substance wow. to this day. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, you know, you look back at this and you think, I'm not, why, how can I do that? Because that's not me. Mm. Um, but I did. Yeah. And I'm not proud of it. Yeah. So you went back to rehab? No, so I threw myself into Cocaine Anonymous okay. and I did 90, me 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm -hmm. So I said, how on earth am I going to do 90 meetings in 90 days? And someone said to me, well, how often do you use? I said, every day. Mm -hmm. So they said, you can use 90 times in 90 days, but you won't go to those lengths for re recovery. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, fair point. <laughs> so I went to 90 meetings in 90 days and took phone numbers. And, you know, for me, I was... I was single at the time and for me, you know, you're 26 or whatever it was, I you want to go out and, and have fun. Mm. But I was too scared to. And I think one of the best things about the fellowship for me was not necessarily the meetings and working the steps, which are also vi vital, but it was the network of friends that you build up and it's going for the coffees after, going out for dinner, going to a convention in brighton for the week you know these things were just yeah. incredible it's the connections again absolutely and have you maintained these connections 14 years on yeah yeah 
And yeah. and how have you stayed clean for fourteen years? Well, I, so I set up my business, and you know, I went back. I, I mentioned that the only rehab that that you'd hear heard of is the Priory. Yeah. So when I a year into recovery, I'd, I'd had quite a few people reaching out to me where to go. And I didn't really know the answers. And I just started researching. So I thought, well, what rehabs are out there? So I started researching um, what rehabs there are, what what they charge, what they, what substances they, they detox for, um, where they're located, what their CQC ratings are, um, everything, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. And somehow, and ironically... I had 46 pounds to my name and that's what I paid a guy to do my website who helped me. Wow. And good value. Really good. I <laughs> can't get that these days. Um, and it's now one of the largest addiction advisory services in the country. Um, and we help hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a year. Mm. Um, Are you a for, telephone service? Or? We're a telephone. So we literally hold their hands and deal with it. So if they've not got any money and they want to know what charitable or statutory options are available to them, we sell them. If they've got money available and they don't know which private options are affordable for them or what routes they can go down, because some people say, well, I'm a single mother. Mm. I can't take 28 days out of rehab because I've got a child dependent on me. Mm. We have other options for that. We have intensive outpatients, online programs. There's everything. Yeah. So it's, it's depending on what people's needs are. And one thing that I've realised is not many people have the same needs. Everyone's different. Yes. So you don't need 20, 30 grand to go to the Priory? Is, is Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. Are there NHS facilities? Yes, but it's hard. It's the funding process because when someone reaches that point that they want help, mm. you've got that window and their heads can change from one day to the next. Yeah. But you really want to try and maximize on that window of opportunity and the funding process can take nine months because you've got to go through um it's taxpayers money mm-hmm. so if everyone just oh, i want rehab and they just say yeah no problem we'll fund yeah. it it's not being responsible to taxpayers money yeah. so they have to have a whole funding process to go through to ensure they're they're serious about this that they're committed and that is a, a quite a process yeah so so i wanted to ask you um do you agree that these days kind of alcohol and drugs to a degree have been slightly normalized in society and there's quite a lot of people that you know do drink a lot or do take a lot of drugs and still function you know in a normal life day-to-day normal job family etc so my question is at what point do, do they know they're an addict and when should they seek help great question so if you looked at every rehab around the world 70% of the clients in that rehab will be made up of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest one by far. And all it is is a drug in liquid form. So the answer to your question is if you love drinking or you love taking cocaine and it's not affecting your work, your relationships, your finances, your health, would you stop it? You wouldn't. So that line is consequences. If you're starting to get consequences, whether it be financial, work, relationships, whatever it be, that line there is when people, I would say, then become receptive to to think, okay, I might have a problem. Yeah. 
So that's really interesting. So consequences, basically. Correct. Yeah. If you don't have any consequences, then why why on earth would you stop? Yeah. So that's when I give, when families reach out and say, oh, my son, he's doing X, Y, and Z or, or whatever, um, and he won't get any help. Mm. Consequences. Yeah. And so for people listening, if they think that they might have a problem, what would you advise them first off to do? Would it be to, you know, kind of seek their local AA or Cocaine Anonymous or what, what would your initial advice be to them? So I've heard some really bad answers to that, <laughs> right? So I had um, someone once, an influencer said to someone, if you feel that you've got a problem, you feel you don't have a problem, then just stop. Now, if you're drinking a litre bottle of vodka or spirits a day and you just stop, there is a chance of a seizure. So don't do that. Speak to someone first as a first starting point. They can absolutely call Help for Addiction. Um, the website is www.help and then the number for addiction.co.uk. Um, there's loads of information there. But I would say do your research first before doing anything drastic. Yeah. So, And we'll put the, the, um, the details about Help for Addiction in the show notes. So if anyone does want to contact anyone for advice they can they can seek you that way um going back to you you've already told me that you hate exercise (laughs) which (laughs) a lot of people use therapeutically well i'm just gonna cut i'm just gonna recap (laughs) i'm just gonna recap that so i said um to emma that that i've come to realize that exercise is bad Mm. because whenever i do it i get hurt and if I will never injure myself laying on the sofa watching a Netflix series. (laughs) So, you know, figure it out. It's the same reason why I say sleep's bad because I go to bed feeling quite good and I wake up feeling like shit. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, you're doing something wrong there. Um, So I was going to ask you if there's any specific strategies which you have used to kind of help drive you forward. So for... To to achieve, you know, to kind of looking at where you, you were to where you've come. I think it sounds maybe a little bit cliche, but do what makes you happy, I think, is is very important. But also, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Um, if you believe in something and you work hard at it, you can absolutely get it. Yeah. So hard work. Yeah. I think it's hard. I think I think hard work, but also balance. Yeah. Because if you go, you've got to obviously look after yourself at the same time. And mm-hmm. and in my industry, there's you know lots of people that own rehabs. They're they're, they're working round the clock, yeah. and they are drained. And that has effects in all areas. And it's quite easy to fall into that trap of doing that. But at five thirty. I finish work, I go home, family time. Um, and that's it. I wouldn't, I don't like to miss bath time with the kids. Yeah. Um, I put the kids to bed and then I spend time with my wife. And then on the weekends, family time, that's yeah. it. And, and that balance is vital. Yeah, balance is great. So for anyone listening, Nick hasn't just said to work really hard, not sleep, not exercise, <laughs> and eat loads of food on the sofa. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Um, but is it yeah no I see what you're saying it's balance um but hard work during the hours that you're committed that you're to committed work, to which is really helpful 
Um, final question I like to ask my guests. If you could go back in time when things were at your lowest, so like your breaking point, what do you wish you could tell yourself now? Go and do Emma Levy's show. <laughs> Except that. <laughs> um, it, when I was at my lowest, um, what what I know now, what yeah. I would tell on get honest. Mm. Because secrets keep you sick yeah. and the the quicker you can get honest the quicker you can move forward that's great thank you really helpful nick thank you for coming on today thank I, you for I, having me yeah i really think if anyone's listening that you know your story is inspirational and i really think that it can help people going through similar things so thank you very much thank you Please remember to rate, review and subscribe because apparently it does make a huge difference to the podcast. We're so excited that the first series of When Life Gives You Lemons is sponsored by Coe's Linen. Coe's supply some of the UK's finest hotels with luxury linens, including bedding, towels and bathrobes. So if you want to feel like you're on holiday or a spa break every day, then I can highly recommend their products. I really love my personalised bathrobe. You know that feeling when you've had a long day at work or a really hard workout. That's when all I want is to have a hot bath, dry myself in my fluffy Coase towel and then relax on the sofa. And that is when you'll find me in my Coase bathrobe. Honestly, the most cosy item I've ever owned. All products can be personalised with custom monograms designed by leading interior designer Sophie Patterson. You can find them exclusively online at www.coeslinen.com. Listeners to When Life Gives You Lemons can save 10% with the discount code POD10. You can find a link in the show notes.